STEM Prime Research Cast. Okay, it is the week of May 24th, 2020, and welcome to uh, part two of the four-part series, Thermodynamics and the Three Functions of Money. Okay, uh, as always, we don't have ads, we don't have sponsors or spots or placements or anything like that. Um, this is a fully self-funded project, so, uh, you know, obviously uh, something like this, <laughs> I don't want too much uh, influence coming from or you know, pushes from any sort of uh, financially invested uh, parties. So yeah, I'm, I'm keeping that entire arena of craziness at bay, not even dealing with it. Better for you guys, better for me, better for the project. Um, okay, t-shirts, hoodies, and stickers. <laughs> the proofs are done. They're off to the printers, so they will be available soon. Um, I will make sure and let everybody know. Um, yeah, so they're cool. I, I like them. I don't know. Maybe they're not that cool. I like them. Uh, I guess we'll see what everybody else thinks. As always, thank you for everybody that uh, is listening and viewing and watching and following this project. Um, I couldn't do this without, it, without uh, public support. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I apologize for the lateness, lateness of this uh, episode. I have come to a conclusion. <clears throat> that is that I'm, I'm going to have to, excuse me, I'm going to have to lengthen the time between each episode because <laughs> I'm so incredibly busy that getting, I, I had no idea doing a podcast or, you know, videos or whatever would take so much time. This is <laughs> an extremely time consuming sort of project. So, uh, because I have a billion other things to do, not a billion, probably multiple other things to do, I'm going to be promising at least one episode per month. However, for the most part, I'm going to be getting two episodes in every month. But um, at least, that's the minimum, at least one episode per month. This is probably going to, you know, put things off a little bit, but better safe than sorry. So yeah, we're going to be doing at least one episode per month, but I'm going to be at least regularly releasing two episodes per month. That being said, <clears throat> I have two other videos that I will be releasing this week. So uh, keep your eyes out for those. Uh, it is not part of this series, but I think you'll find them interesting. Uh, one is a <laughs> bit of a commentary on um, that HBO show, Silicon Valley. And uh, the other is kind of a theoretical sort of a video. But I think you'll find them interesting, so uh, keep your eyes out for that. Okay, um, new listeners, 
all listeners, everybody. Uh, you can find the STEM Prime Research Cast on um, Spotify. If you go to stemdrive.ai, and I feel like I always have to say this because uh, the more I do this, the more I realize how confusing this must be. The STEM Prime, STEM Prime is in reference to the research cast and the simulations, or the one simulation there is the Terra Prime simulation. Um, the STEM Drive is the actual software and uh, implementation, hardware implementation of uh, the Epiconomy system, of the STEM Epiconomy. Okay, so, yeah, back. Um, you can find the STEM Prime Research Cast on Spotify, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and I still haven't gotten it on <laughs> Apple Podcasts, CastBox, or Overcast, but as soon as I have some freaking time, I will get around to it, I promise. So if those are your like platforms of choice, I am super apologetic. But um, now that I'm going to have a bit more time on my hands, I will be getting around to that soon. <sighs> Hence, the t-shirts are on their way. Exciting. Okay, announcements. You're going to like this. <laughs> <laughs> the contest for those of you that are in the know and have you know watched episode five and know what I'm talking about this Monday. Okay, so what is what, what are we looking at here? This coming Monday is the oh crud! I on my calendar up this following Monday. Okay, by this Monday I will have the contest rules up on stemdrive.ai um, but I'm going to be re-announcing the rules again right now and uh, these are the rough kind of rough around the edges rules so uh, any further rules I add between now and Monday will fit within this kind of uh, structure so okay so these are the rules for the contest and what it is about. I'm announcing it now, like I did in number five, but uh, but yeah, the official announcement will be on Monday when I, when I have it up on the website. Okay, what we're looking for is a replacement for the term post-scarcity. Um, now, I don't want just random words thrown out there. What I do want is, this is, sort of essay contest, okay? Um, I'll get to that in a second. Uh, okay, so no more than 10 pages. 12-point um, title. This is maybe may a little formal, but, uh, you know, this is how we keep people from writing one letter per page things and trying to get away with it. Okay, 12-point title, 11-point subtitles and section headings, and 10-point uh, text for the body. Single or double space is fine. Um, if you want to make a dense single-space <laughs> single essay, you know, go for it. Uh, margins, one-half to one-inch, one-half-inch to one-inch. And 
uh, for the etymology, no more than two pages. The first two pages need to be the etymology of the word. Okay, um, then the rest of the essay needs to cover two specific, uh, answer two specific questions. One is, why does this term apply to stem ep the STEM epiconomy? Why does it apply to the STEM epiconomy? Um, and it, like I said before, if you haven't watched all the episodes up until now, I highly rec recommend you do if you want to enter the contest because the term is to really kind of, well, is to replace the terms post-scarcity. Um, so, uh, so I want it to be able to apply to the STEM epiconomy very well, um, as well as be a good replacement for the colloquially used post-scarcity. So not, not the, the lexical definition, which is actually pretty much impossible unless we master space and time and, you know, energy matter conversion. But <laughs> that nonsense aside, yes, a term that means post-scarcity in the way that we use it when we talk about it. Not that we just have anything at our beck and call at any time, whenever, and in any amount. That's just not realistic. So uh, it needs to be a well-researched term. It needs to be put together, um, you know, with your knowledge. If you have to look up some Latin prefixes and suffixes, do, you know, refresh your Latin or uh, pull from, you know, other languages that you know, um, including English, you know, whatever. However you come up with a term and however you, you devise the, this new word, I want at least two pages or no more than two pages on the etymology. Okay. Why, if you haven't watched episode five, why do we want to replace post-scarcity? And there are multiple reasons for this, but um, the two biggest reasons are, um, as several people have already pointed out, post-scarcity, you know, when you're looking at the lexical definition, you're talking about really something that is impossible to achieve unless you're like some sort of god, right? To have, it's just not a, a, a sensible term, um, because there will always be something that is scarce. There will, there will, there will always be a resource that you don't have enough of, or, you know, that you don't have as much of as other things. You don't have an infinite supply. So, uh, that, that's bothered me. The other, the other reason is, and this is my personal kind of beef with the word. When you say post scarcity, you're talking about, you know, after scarcity, so you're, you're talking about, I don't know, if we achieved post-scarcity in our lifetimes, we wouldn't want to call it post-scarcity. It's like saying, oh, this is after the war or after, as I, I've, I've said this before, after the shitty times, after the bad times, after the, you know, after the, ugh, that stuff. And that's just not, that doesn't resonate with me. I, I want something that that can be said in a present tense in a, this is, this is what we've achieved. Not this is our state now after we've dealt with all that shit, that kind of a thing. I, I don't like the way it's post 
scarcity post ah, bad stuff so that is kind of the reason I, i've launched this um first place as i've showed before let me pull this up really quick uh the person who wins first place will get this bose soundlink revolve with a charger um I will wipe it down with alcohol before I send it, okay? <laughs> Since we're in the middle of a crazy pandemic. So, pretty dope speaker, uh, charging base. That is first place, plus a t-shirt, some stickers and stuff. Second place, we'll get a t-shirt and a hoodie. I'm thinking maybe a jacket, uh, possibly. So, if it's not a hoodie, it's gonna be a jacket, but if it's not the jacket, we're gonna do the hoodie. And then with some stickers as well. And and uh, third place, we'll uh, get a t-shirt and some stickers. So, uh, that is that. Okay. Okay, simulation update. Oh, I'm coming through data sets. <laughs> and, and reading research on other, uh, other people's... Um, kind of mathematical simulations of the economy and trying to get a good grasp on that. So um, I'm in a very dense sort of research phase for developing the simulations and that's where you are with that. Um, it's turned out to be, oh my gosh, dude. I honestly had no idea how insanely like intricate and detailed and just, it, insane it is to try to um, simulate and model the economy I mean I had uh, some clue obviously it's not you know a simple equation that you can just plug whatever into but I had no idea <laughs> just how insane it is so yeah I, I'm in the middle of that right now it's quite uh, an experience <laughs> but, yep. Okay, now before we get moving, I want to do a quick review of what we talked about last time, um, the four laws of thermodynamics and the three functions of money, um, and a quick summary of last episode. So, okay, so the first law of thermodynamics can be communicated with the equation Delta U equals Q minus W. I'm not sure what U, Q, or W actually stand for, but what it means is the change of a system's internal energy is equal to uh, the internal, the energetic input minus the energetic output. Okay, so what this means is that a system's energetic state is relative to it, the, the states of the systems surrounding it that it's interacting with. So that's of what that boils down to. The second law of thermodynamics is the law of entropy. And this is really basic law, um, but what this is telling us is that entropy always increases. and uh, Heat doesn't flow backwards. A system's randomness, I guess, or, or chaotic state is always increasing. The third law of thermodynamics is it tells us that 
as you approach zero degrees Kelvin, you begin to lose more and more um, physical movements and vibrations, that sort of thing. So once you hit zero, theoretically, you should, ha you should have no movement or vibration whatsoever. It should be just the core, whatever it is, that is the base component of uh, matter, but, you know, you can't reach zero degrees Kelvin, so, um, but that's kind of the idea. It's kind of, you know, calculus limit kind of thing. And the zeroth law is more or less the transitive property of equality. So what the zeroth law of thermodynamic states is that if A equals C and B equals C, then A is also equal to B. So this is talking about uh, thermal equilibrium and that's that. Okay, so let's move on. <laughs> okay, so last episode we talked about what exactly value is and I presented the term harmonized state potential and what that means or HSP if we don't want to, you know, twist our tongues up in that one. But um, what this is basically telling us is that in order for us to be able to like nail an actual quantitative value on any one thing that we consider to be valuable, we must proceed that, that quantizing with our, you know, kind of what we want it to be doing. So any one system could react or, you know, act, I guess, in any one of many ways. And for us to have, to pin a value on it, it should act in one or two separate ways. We don't want something, more often than not, for a system to, to produce what, what we desire, it needs to follow a very specific path. Occasionally, there are systems that have one or two paths that it can take to, you know, end up with with a end product that we desire. But basically, what we're doing is we're we're saying we we, we can't wait for the product to be finished and then and then pin a value on it or or look at it, you know, from like a kind of I don't know retrospectively look at it and say, oh, I want that to be this much. Instead, we've got to look at how systems work and say, this is valuable to us because whatever. And then, you know, quantify what's happening in the system. And then we can have an actual quantifiable value that we can call value or right, the harmonized state potential. Now, in the first episode, I made the claim that the STEM epiconomy invalidates the three functions of money for multiple reasons. But um, I also made the claim that the STEM drive handles all the concerns, like the preceding concerns that really gave rise to kind of trying to thread out th the three functions of money. The STEM drive handles those concerns more effectively and efficiently than than uh, a than money itself, basically.
I also made the claim <laughs> that STEM theory hits efficiency bedrock, meaning that you really can't find any more efficient way to handle, right, handle said concerns other than what would I have outlined for, like, as STEM theory. So, and so this is sort of my attempt to kind of explain that, uh, that that's the whole point of this, this four-part series. Um, before we go any further, though, I want to kind of dig something up and make a point really quickly. Okay. STEM Prime Research Cast is a research cast, right? This the whole point is to try to find out if this, if the STEM if the AI STEM drive and the STEM ep economy could actually work, could be a viable replacement for what we currently call our economy. <sighs> Granted, uh, I originally had a um, human relations manager, but I lost him at the start of the COVID pandemic. So right now it's just me, which brings, it makes this really hard for me because I want this to work, but I also need to be very objective and realize that if I come across something that shows me that this isn't gonna work, I need to be honest and forthright with it. So to, so I'm fighting a lot of internal bias doing this project. And I need you to understand that because if you see me going down a path I shouldn't be going, <laughs> you need to call me out. You need to just raise a flag and say, hey, you know, you said this and you're kind of going this way, but you know, we know this or, or whatever the case may be. So until I get a bit more help on this and, and some of the other projects start generating a little bit more income and I can have a little bit more money to spend on, on certain aspects of this project, um, I, I am open to all criticisms and, and you know, whatever. Just, just, just call me out if, if I'm going down the wrong path. That's all I'm saying. Um, I realize that that there is sort of a conflict of interest going on here with this being my project and I'm also doing the research. But at the same time, how else am I gonna get this out there and have some sort of proof of concept that I can provide to the public without doing some upfront research myself? So it's a bit of a catch-22, but that's kind of the situation um, that I'm in. That being said, Let's move on. Now, I have been trying to educate myself as much as possible on as many of the fields that are relevant to this project. So, I've been taking several online courses, um, one of them being behavioral, behavioral economics. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a course by Professor Scott uh, Hutel. I don't know if any of you know who that is, but it is from the, um, the Great Courses. I, can't, I always forget, is it The Greatest Courses? I think it's just The Great Courses. The Great Courses uh, Plus website. 
So I've been taking notes and I'm about halfway through with it with a course. And I want to make, highlight a couple of points that is, I don't know, coincidentally very, very <laughs> um, relevant to uh, this four-part series. So uh, Professor Hutel talks about a philosopher, uh, 18th and 19th century philosopher named Jeremy Bentham, English philosopher. And he proposed that pain and pleasure are the two central motivators that really, you know, yeah, can't remember the quote he used, that they are our masters or something like that. But his idea gave rise to, uh, to theories that value is derived from pleasure. And I was, okay, that's kind of where I'm at. That's what I've kind of figured out through all this. But then he goes on to say that since then, there have been many, many ideas um, to add to what constitutes value. He continues to say that uh, some say pleasure and benefits like what the benefits are add to what the value is. I had to think about this, but, um, well, well, we'll come back to this in a second. Um, others still define value as adaptive fitness or more or less, if it allows you to pass on your genes, then it's, it has value, right? Okay. Well, Professor Hutel argues that pleasure and benefits are still not the only factors that come into play when we're talking about value. So we'll get into this in one second, but I'd like to counter some of his, some of his arguments really quickly, if I may. So far, his course has been super enlightening and interesting, but on this one particular topic, I th this is my counter, okay? This is, this is my counter argument to this. If you recall, uh, in the last episode, I stated that value is directly relational, proportional to sentiment, not pleasure. I think there's a difference between pleasure and sentiment, and Obviously, there's a difference between pleasure and sentiment. But I think with, with Jeremy Bentham's, Bentham's argument, with his you know, proclamation that pleasure and pain are kind of like the fundamental gods behind what, what we attribute value to, I think that sort of kind of took the mentality and the philosophy of what value is down that road and kind of left sentiment in the dust. Even though sentiment encompasses pleasure, it's, it's not, you know, solely restricted to what pleasure is. Sentiment can be any number of emotions and, and feelings and sensations. He also said that, that any one thing's benefit plays a part in its value. But let's 
dissect that really quickly, if you don't mind. <laughs> Why do we seek things for their benefit? Like, what is the driving force that gets us to seek something for its benefit? And that can be reduced to the fact that it makes us feel a certain way. If I know I eat that salad, if I'm not in the mood for salads, but I know salads are good for me, if I want an ice cream instead, but I dig into that salad anyway and eat it, it's still going to make me feel good because I know I'm doing something that's good for me. I know I'm doing something that's beneficial for me. And that still induces a feeling of like I did something that's good for me, a feeling of, uh, I don't know, that that it has been fulfilled. I've done something that's good for me. It's, it's I wouldn't call it pleasure exactly, but I have done something that's good for me and it makes me feel good, right? It makes me feel fulfilled in that, in that kind of respect of that dimension of what health value is, I guess. So even when we're talking about whether, if something has benefit, it still can be reduced to sentiment. So I'm, I'm really still sketchy on, on accepting the idea that, that pleasure and benefit are, are, are two things when they can in fact both be collapsed into sentiment. So I would argue that there is nothing that exists. And if I'm wrong, if you can think of an example, by all means, email me and let me know. But I'm, I would argue that there is nothing that exists that has benefit to us that doesn't also induce some feeling that some sensation that is the core of, of what gives it value. I don't think there is anything. I think anything that has any sort of benefit for any possible thing that we could do psychologically can be reduced to sentiment. Um, I'm not 100% on this. I'm only about halfway through the course. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think... I don't think anything anything like that exists. I don't think there's any such thing because if we know something is beneficial, that's it, it's a function of our of our cognition. It's a, it's our ability to plug that into what we need for completion or proper functioning or or whatever the case is, whatever that benefit you know is applied to. Simply knowing that induces a feeling of gratification, some sort of feeling of, of completeness or completion or, or whatever, you know, the case may be, it's reducible to sentiment. So, yeah, I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I, man, I, I'm having a hard time with that one even in extreme cases, but for, as an example, somebody's arm gets, you know, mangled and torn off and pulled into a, 
you know, wood chopper or whatever. And he gets it out and it's totally mangled and it's not going to survive. And they say, okay, we're going to have to chop it off. And, you know, the best thing for him objectively is that they chop it off. But that's going to hurt and he's going to lose his appendage, but he's going to keep his life. And he knows that. So even in that kind of like messed up situation, you can still reduce the benefit of that situation or action or whatever to the fact that he knows that it is the best course of action. And that gives him at least some sense of this is the best way to handle this. Okay, now remember how I said Professor Hutel said that there was... um, there was still more uh, to what value is that pleasure and benefit aren't the only drivers. Well, okay. He gets, he gets a little into neurology, which if you don't mind neurology, I, I love neurology, but he talks about reward seeking behaviors and the reward pathways in the brain and the ventral tegmental area. And what he begins to talk about is the fact that they've found that um, increased neuron, like neuronal increased, sorry, neurons in that area increase their firing rates, not when reward is delivered, but as an expectation of what the reward, what reward they're going to receive. So uh, he calls it the reward prediction error meaning that you can expect a reward and feel that sensation for, for you know, um, waiting for that reward, and then it doesn't happen, and the prediction is off, and then the firing rate drops and decreases and makes you feel crappy. But, oh, man, again, like, I get it. I, I see the correlation between between what, what value between the perception of, of what some value is. I'm gonna have to think about this, but I'm just letting you know, this is, this is the research I've been doing since then till now, and I'm, I'm undecided, I guess, on this one. Because I understand what he's saying, and I get that he's saying that that reward, that, that those feelings don't. Those feelings are from reward expectations. What you know, what we, pre- we predict is going to happen, not from the reward itself. Which brings up a good point. But also, I think it's missing quite a bit as well. Like the mangled arm guy, right? He knows he's losing his arm, but he also knows it is the best thing that they can do. I can guarantee you that reward, his reward pathways aren't jacking up in, in firing rate because they just chopped his arm off because it's the best possible course. There's no effing way. But he knows that that is the best, that is the best option that he has. Otherwise... 
gangrene's going to set in. You know, he's going to have a mailed arm. It's not going to be useless. He's going to die, blah, blah, blah. So I think there's, aside from the reward pathways, I think there's something else going on. And that's, that's kind of where I'm stuck on that one. I understand what he's saying. And if it was just that, if we were just reward-driven like that, we would be more animalistic than, than human, I think. But I think there are other, other cogni- cognitions, I don't know, cognitive processes going on. You can't just just reduce it to you know reward prediction. Like there, there's there's so much more, and it's so much more nuanced than just reward and feeling great. You know, <laughs> it's so much more than that. So, uh, Professor Hutel, <laughs> if you ever watch this, which I doubt, but if you do, I challenge you on that, man. I think, I think you're missing something. I think there is, there is a level here, and, and I get that you're looking at this from the perspective of, of behavioral economics, but if you listen to what I've said up until now, I'm going to challenge you on this, that there's something else going on, that there is a sense of fulfillment and reward and and a sense of recognizing benefit that goes beyond the ventral tegmental area. Um, now, as a comment on, on what uh, the professor has said, I want to suggest that... M- we might be confusing um, the direct, what am I trying to say here? The direct sentimental, I guess, sensations with, with value modifiers. So you can have your kind of base value of any one thing. And then you can have your modifiers. And I think what Professor Hutel is talking about are, are modifiers, that the, they're the sort of variables that, that you know, kind of alter the value, that you have kind of this base value. And it, you know, still it's based on sentiment, so it's still really relative and subjective. But that you overlay that with these modifiers and you end up having a much more dynamic system. Again, I'm not a neurologist. I'm just thinking through, you know, what, what he's presented so far in his lecture. I'm not done with it yet either. So I may come across, you know, something in one of the next 12 lectures or whatever that, that, uh, kind of helps remedy all this and and answer a few questions for me, but I'm just relaying to you, you know, what I've kind of come across, what my immediate intuition is, but uh, we'll see. Again, I'm trying to be super open with this because this is a huge project. I'm putting my life on my line, so I don't want to get anything wrong. And since I'm doing this solo right now, I need to be really careful with my own biases. Okay, 
Professor Hutel then goes on to describe prospect theory, which is, again, I think this is a modifier because, man, I don't know. I need to talk to some, some PhDs because I'm, I'm starting to get a little blurry here, but it seems like these would be modifiers because you have prospect theory and you have your two sub kind of like sub genres of prospect theory, right? You have reference dependence and probability weighting or weighing. I, I, they say it weighting, but that's so weird to me. I should just call it weighing. Um, both of which have helped me see things just a, actually quite a bit more clearly and has really explained a lot of human behavior to me. But still, I don't think these are base, you know, base uh, valuation, like the basic valuation identifier. You know, I, I think both, both of these are, are modifiers. Anyway, both of these ideas are super fascinating. I highly recommend taking a behavioral economics course if you if you find a good one or, or have time. The Hutel's lecture series on uh, the Great Courses Plus is is really really fascinating. Yeah, so I think a lot of the stuff that Professor Hutel has been talking about. And like we talked about in the previous episode, right? You have these modifiers or modifiers. Okay. You have sort of this instantiating system sentiment, right? That, that kind of like initiates the entire thing that, you know, there is a value to any one system or the out, you know, a product of any one system. And so it's, it's the instantiating sentiment. That, that kind of kickstarts the whole thing. <sighs> Instead of what we're currently doing, right, which, which is like this sort of retrospective um, sentiment-driven value valuation that we do. And it's really an estimate. I mean, it's not even an estimate. It's just this kind of thing. It has real no basis to it. That's why I suggest that we do the the valuation, the, you know, the sentimental valuation, the instantiation first be preceding the system. And then we can calculate the, the quantities and quantify different parts of the system. It's the best way to, to actually get a quantifiable value for any one system's value. But yeah, you, the, what he's talking about are it modifiers they've got to be i mean i'm gonna have to think more about this but i'm almost sure that everything that he's described are are modifiers crap i might be wrong i'm gonna have to really finish this course and i've got to talk to some people about this i'll get back to everybody about it but okay medium of exchange Let's get get on to the meat of the episode. Okay, if you remember what medium of of exchange is, is basically the idea that you have one thing that has, you know, can be, uh, have multi-vector valuation. So 
you can trade it in for a pack of cards or some cigarettes or a car or house, you know, whatever. It has, we've designed money to be able to be a medium of exchange. So one central sort of, you know, omnidirectional infinite vector valuation system that you can just trade for just about anything. That's the entire idea behind it, right? Okay, so that is what medium of exchange is. Now, before we get going, I want to make a quick and crucial point. Medium of exchange, medium of exchange and store of value both share several issues that come back to kind of the core problem when looking at it from a thermodynamics perspective. So just just so you're aware, I'm okay, I'm going to kind of barely touch on a couple of things that have to do with store of value today. And when I get to store of value, I'm going to talk about things that I didn't talk about today, but that touch on the medium of exchange. Just so you're aware that that is the situation. Um, the things I talk about today that touch on store of or uh, store of value are really mostly have to do with medium of exchange, and vice versa. Just so you know, but there's actually quite a bit of crossover. But because I need to make the episode separate and, ah, you know, so I'm, I, I tried to kind of separate it as much as possible without losing any sort of, you know, substance to the argument or what I'm talking about. Okay, now theoretically, money is a universal platform for exchange. That's the whole, not the whole point, but that is one of the three main points of money, right? Ah, duh. Okay, now from the perspective of the laws of thermodynamics, medium of exchange gets us into a bit of trouble. And let me explain this because, <sighs> you guys, I had a really hard time. One of the reasons this took so long to get this out was because I had a really hard time trying to find a way to explain this. I could see it in my mind, I knew what I was saying in my mind, but like there really wasn't any <laughs> real world uh, comparison or metaphor that I could really pin it on. So <sighs> I've got to say this was a one of the most frustrating episodes that, that I had to try to figure out how to really relay this to the audience. But... I got it, okay? So, <clears throat> the medium of exchange gets us into this kind of, see, now I'm stuck again. It gets us into this sort of slow decay without us realizing what's happening. And, <clears throat> This is one of those points that's actually really quite heavily tied to store of value. 
So I'm going to leave a lot of the depth of this out and we're going to go back over this, not next episode, but the one after. But um, just mentioning it here, we're going to dive into this later, but yeah, just so you know, that kind of, pers- we'll, we'll touch on this in the fourth episode, but just so you know, it gets us into some trouble here thermodynamically, like big time. Okay. Uh, so we're going to dive the, dive into this a lot deeper in the store value episode, but the largest problem with the medium of exchange is that there is no exchange in nature. And you can say, okay, so what that, you know, how, why does that make it a problem? Well, we're getting there. I just put words in your mouth, but follow me. We're going to get to this in a second. There is no exchange in nature. Everything is a flow. Energy, second law of thermodynamics, right? Entropy always increases. Energy comes from a high or a low entropy system. And as entropy increases, as it releases energy and distributes it, and other systems receive that, that energy, And as energy flows through the system, entropy is increased through that system until it is excreted in whatever many forms that energy can be excreted. From the earth, it's going to be electromagnetic radiation. But the problem, the basis of the problem with the medium of exchange is that in the universe, in nature, there is no exchange. Energy, you know, so much energy and so much energy isn't, you know, they don't trade hands. They don't say, here, I'll give you this much energy for that much matter. That, that kind of stuff doesn't happen. You're always going to have an increase in entropy and you never have any kind of exchange like that happening. So why is that a problem? Well, in nature, there's just this flow, right? There's this thermodynamic flow of entropy, you know, increasing and the energy flowing. And there's never any form of tangential exchange. It's just not something that happens in nature. Okay, so like I said before, why is this a problem? Okay, I've had, as I said earlier, a bit of a time coming up with a good metaphor for this. And I decided the best way to really explain this is with Zeno's paradox. (laughs) This, God, I hope this isn't hard to follow. If this is too hard to follow, let me know. I'll try to find a better way to explain this. But this is the only way I've been able to come up with to really explain why medium of exchange hurts us as as an idea for what money is. Okay. Now, we are going to sort of jump into kind of this logical, meta-mathematical landscape, which when I go back and write the paper... This is going to be really, really difficult for me to prove this because it's just kind of this 
intuitive logic so far. I mean, there's logic to it, and you'll see what I'm talking about, but to really pin it down with numbers is going to be difficult. So, for now, we're going to lean on metamathematics, kind of the, the metamathematical intuition of logic really is kind of where we're going with this. Now, if you're not familiar with Zeno's Paradox, I highly recommend you uh, look it up, watch some videos, read some articles, get a good handle on, on what it's talking about. There's multiple aspects to it, and there's different ways you can kind of attack this. Hopefully, I'll be able to, be able to persuade you that merely having a medium ink exchange is kind of flies in the face of really everything. <laughs> Okay, so Zeno's Paradox. And it's not just Zeno's Paradox, it's other similar, similar problems. You'll see what I'm talking about in just a second here. Um, these were, Zeno's Paradox was designed previous to calculus. Not designed, it was thought of previous to really kind of the, the oncome of calculus. And so Zeno's Paradox and, and several other kind of thought experiments and, and philosophical sort of issues of, of this type were kind of this unscalable, un, undefeatable, just paradox that, that really didn't make any sense. And nobody really understood why it was there or, or how to really kind of like, you know, make sense of it in, in any way that, that would have any merit or have any usefulness to us. Okay, now, as I've mentioned multiple times now, uh, the universe's fundamental method for distribution is the thermodynamic flow of energy. And, you know, in that, in that flow, in that river of energy, you have the increase of entropy just kind of almost like, like it's wake, I guess. I don't know. Maybe they just kind of perpetuate together, I guess but you never have exchange anywhere, <laughs> ever. Quick side note, if it appears to you that exchange actually exists somewhere out there in some form, I would encourage you to review whatever, you know, whatever that is that you think that is actually um you know some sort of exchange happening and i can guarantee you that after sufficient analysis of whatever system you're thinking of you will realize that it is not exchange that it is actually you know just it might look like exchange happening but it is not it is the flow of the entropic flow and the flow of energy and just how the universe is working. There, there's no exchange happening. I promise you. I guarantee it. There is no exchange happening anywhere. Ooh. Maybe. Maybe Hawking radiation. But. No. No, that's still that's still an increase in entropy. Yeah, no, there's no exchange. 
I can guarantee it. <laughs> Last second thought pops into my mind. Yeah, great. Thanks, Stephen. Okay, now by using a system, a medium of exchange, we are incurring two major issues. First, we're divorcing ourselves from, like we're di mentally divorcing ourselves from the thermodynamic flow of energy and the increase of entropy in, in the universe. And this is, I would argue that this is a bad thing, that this is dangerous. And we're gonna kinda get to that in a second. And again, this is still like, just quick reminder, okay, I'm not throwing this out there as fact. All of my videos up until now really are, are hypotheses. And I am going to have to go back through and write papers and figure out every little thing on my way. And if I hit a brick wall, if I've screwed up, I'm gonna have to redo a video or I'm gonna have to you know, proclaim it or I'm just gonna have to drop the, if it's a, a big enough screw up, I'm gonna have to drop the entire project. But this is all hypothesis at this point, okay? Just putting that out there so you know I'm not proclaiming anything. This is a logically constructed hypothesis. So the actual work to prove it and the papers that I have to write come later. And that's the hard part. <laughs> okay. But this is, this is where we're going right now. Okay. Okay. Um, so the first thing is right. Okay. We're divorcing ourselves mentally from, from the flow, from the actual flow. And it, The best way to describe this is with an iceberg, I guess, okay? Say reality is this big ocean and we're just kind of floating out there in the sea and every time we see an iceberg kind of pop up, not that they pop up in reality, but I guess maybe if they break off from something. But what I'm trying to say here is that we see kind of this iceberg this head pop up and and we recognize it as being something that is valuable to us it's like if there's this entire ocean of 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 mechanical waves you know just waves coming up and down and what we do as humans under our you know currency-based economy is we go out and seek the wave the crests that that we consider to be of value and we are ignoring everything else. So we're just kind of looking for the tops of these things like, like the apple, right? My favorite example, right? You have the apple, the blossom, it starts to bud, it turns into a little hard ball, it grows and gets bigger and bigger and becomes an apple, okay? That temporally, that, that rise to becoming an apple, all right? That's kind of the wave I'm talking about. Then when it crests, it's the apple. Then when it starts to decay, that's coming back down. We wanna catch things as they're, as they're peaking, at their crest, right? That's what we do. That's, that's kind of how we've trained ourselves to, to see reality. We, 
we look for the peaks of what we consider to be of value, and we go in for the harvest, okay? Now, the second issue is, and this is kind of kind of come back to Zeno's paradox, is that once we see something of value and, and we see a peak appear, we go in and we just, we harvest a snapshot. I'm sorry, I'm, I've been trying so hard to try to put this into words. We go in and we harvest a snapshot, okay? So we have this super dynamic, crazy universe that is just roiling with, you know, waves of all sorts, you know, I guess really actually waves of all sorts, but in this context, right? We're talking about like value waves, I guess, is what we could kind of call this. And so we're looking for things that are, that are peaking, right? And then we just go in for the harvest. And when we go in for the harvest, we take a snapshot. It's like we're taking a thin little slice of that wave just and pulling it out. The second we make an exchange, that's what we're doing. We're, we're just taking a snapshot of this one little thin slice of that wave, and that's the value. And then we make the exchange, and then that's it. Then we're done with that wave, and we don't look at it again. We don't think about it again. We have our dollar bill. We're good. Okay? That's a problem. We have so completely divorced ourselves from the entire, from the just immensity of the ocean of, of interplay that is happening before us that we're losing a lot of what is happening. And, okay, I'm, let me explain this. Oh my God, this is why this was so hard for me to get this episode going because I was having such a hard time like <laughs> coming up with this. Okay, so we're literally taking kind of this like momentary snapshot of just what it is in that moment. And then that's, that's the value. And then that's what we're selling it for. And that's what we hold at that value. Okay. Until, you know, a week goes by and the apples start going bad. And then we, you know, put them on sale for half off or whatever. Okay. Problem. Now, when we get to store value, I'm going to argue that this leads to waste, and it does. But for now, I'm going to argue that by fishing these peaks and, and harvesting kind of these snapshot slices, we're missing out on an insane amount of beneficial information in the system, in the natural system. Okay, psychologically, we see money as the center of value. Like we have been born and raised and we've grown up to see money as sort of like the central housing kind of symbol of what value is. Now, we watch the markets, okay, the markets rise and, and fall and rise and fall, you know, and the, and the undulating rhythm of different, you know, markets and whatever, but we're ignoring the thermodynamic flow of what's happening behind the scenes. And it's like we're, do you see what I'm saying? We're, 
just kind of tunnel vision from, not tunnel vision, plane vision, I guess, right? So we've got the sea of things happening and things are peaking every now and then. And we have kind of this, this, this plane where we're just looking for things that just pop up through our pretend plane of value. And the seconds there, we go harvest, grab a slice, and then it keeps going. But we got our slice. Who cares about what the rest of this big crazy ocean down here is doing? All I want are my little peaks of value. Okay, so no, right? I mentioned Zeno's paradox. <sighs> I'm sorry if this is confusing. This is the best way I could think of to explain this. Okay, remember, many of the issues that Zeno's paradox evoked at the time, we had algebra. Okay, we had algebra, we had some trigonometry, but we did not have calculus. So we couldn't figure out a vast number of the problems that were evoked by Zeno's paradox and several other philosophical issues that, that people were wondering about. Okay, Zeno's paradox basically asked the question, at what point is something moving or not moving, right? So it's kind of a measurement problem. It says, if I move one step to the right, okay, left to you, I guess, it means I must first have had to have moved to here. I must first have had to move halfway from the left to the right. And in order to get there, I must first have had to hit the center point between there and there. And to get here, I must first have had to hit the center point between here and where I started from. And you keep going halves and halves and halves and halves. And it's this infinite regress into, into just, you know, nonsense. And you, you know, before calculus, you would have had, had to, had, you know, come to the conclusion that something's wrong. There, this is a paradox. Motion is not even possible. How, how is this happening? But, so that's kind of the, the cut it in half perspective. That, that's one way you can look at Zeno's paradox. The other way you can look at Zeno's paradox is the, free, the freeze frame perspective, okay? And this leads into calculus, okay? If you took a picture of a bullet and you had a very, very fast you know, camera, and you took a still shot of it as it was passing, and as you develop the image, your camera is so freaking awesome and perfect, that there's no blur or anything. You just see a picture of a bullet sitting in midair. Well, you would have to ask yourself, how, how is it that this has motion? Like, if we're just looking at one single frame of reality, you know, frame of time or whatever, the bullet's not moving. Where is the motion even coming from? There, there's, how do we even know it's moving? What, what about that one little slice of time tells us or tells reality or tells anything that the bullet in the next frame needs to be, needs to still be moving? That's kind of 
where this comes down to. And with at the time, with all the algebra and trig that we had, there was no way to really like <laughs> resolve this problem until calculus rolled around. Okay. And then we have, you know, limits and we have integrals and we can, we can, you know, we can take a limit and figure out that, you know, it's, it's not a series of single snapshots. It's a flow. Hence, the whole point of what I'm talking about. Everything is part of the entropic flow. You don't, you can't get away from it. You can't get out of it. That is what is causing all of this. It is how the whole universe works. So, what I'm trying to say here is that using money in that snapshotty way that we've been using it for thousands of years now is the wrong way to even look at anything. We're trying to see the peaks that we want and take little snapshots of it and use that as our system of resource allocation and distribution. That's ridiculous. We are literally trying to use algebra and trigonometry to solve a calculus problem. I mean, I guess that's what we do, but you know what I'm saying, without calculus. We're trying to solve a calculus problem without calculus. <sighs> am, I, am I coming across here? Are you, do you understand what I'm saying? We're trying to describe a system that can only be described with calculus with algebra. That's what I'm trying to say. And we're trying to use something as a method of, of exchange, a medium of exchange that can't be like you, it has a breakdown and we're going to hit that breakdown pretty hard in the fourth episode. Using money as a medium of exchange divorces us from the natural entropic flow. Period. It just does. Do you see what I'm saying? Why is this so hard to explain? If somebody gets what I'm trying to say and has a better way of explaining this, please, please email me so I can make an addendum to this video and call out your name and thank you with a dozen roses because I'm... A, I know what I'm saying, but I'm having such a hard freaking time getting this across. Media of exchange in a currency-based economy. No, no, no. Okay. Let's do it this way. The STEM economy is to capitalism and a currency-based economy as calculus is to algebra. Does that make sense now? Am I, please, please. Oh, I hope you guys are understanding what I'm saying. I know what I'm saying. And I know that like some of you are going to get what I'm saying, but I know I'm just losing like a good portion of you. And I, if I'm losing you, I'm so sorry. That's what I'm trying to say.
But in any case, doesn't it feel slightly absurd to that we are proclaiming with money and with medium of exchange as, as you know, one of the functions of money as as the best way to or our what we are doing. It's our way of handling things. And doing that, using money and using a you know money as specifically as the three functions of money, you know, medium of exchange, um, store of value and and uh, uh, unit of account. It's like saying that we know better than to adhere to the laws of physics. This is going to catch up with this. It's already catching up with this. Of course, it's already catching up with this. And I'm going to expand on that much more in the fourth episode because it's much easier to attack from, from that perspective, attack, to you know, unfold and reveal what I'm talking about. This is just a very, for some reason, this is difficult to, to really, I, I apologize. This is the best I can do right now. I hope it's good enough. I hope you get you know what I'm saying. I hope everybody understands what's going on here. Ah. But yeah, we're basically saying we know better than physics. We know better than the universe. We're going to do our own thing. We've got our own little system going up here. And we're just, we're just kind of like vultures. We're coming down, hitting the waves and, and taking out slices from the waves and keeping this little system going around up here when everything else is going that way. And, you know, the amount of energy it takes to keep this circulation happening is ridiculous it's it's this self-defeating cycle the crazy thing is is that the universe supplies so much energy and so much just power that we are wasting most of it keeping this little money thing spinning Yet, there is so much still left over that we have actually built a society out of it and progressed scientifically to where we are now. That that is how much of the resources that, you know, or how much energy the universe supplies us. It's, it's just crazy to me. We're wasting so much of it, though, just keeping the system <laughs> in, in, you know, in service. But, yeah, so the universe has a sea of calculus that we are utterly avoiding. And we think we know better with, you know, addition of subtraction up here. And we're, you know, pulling slices and, you know, 299 $3.99. $24, you know, and this whole dynamic sea is just roiling with like just the, the entropic flow of everything just doing its thing. And we're, we're sitting at our, you know, cashier, cashier station and, and typing, that's $12. Like, <laughs> it's just it's so crazy to me that we're still in such a mental rut. Anyway, but in any case, doesn't it feel slightly absurd 
to that we are proclaiming with money and with medium of exchange as, as you know one of the functions of money as as the best way to or our what we are doing it's our way of handling things and doing that using money and using a you know money as specifically as the three functions of money you know medium of exchange um, store of value and and uh, uh, unit of account it's like saying that we know better than to adhere to the laws of physics. This is going to catch up with this. It's already catching up with this. Of course, it's already catching up with this. And I'm going to expand on that much more in the fourth episode because it's much easier to attack from, from that perspective, attack, to you know, unfold and reveal what I'm talking about. This is just a very, for some reason, this is difficult to, to really, I, I apologize. This is the best I can do right now. I hope it's good enough. I hope you get you know what I'm saying. I hope everybody understands what's going on here. Ah. But yeah, we're basically saying we know better than physics. We know better than the universe. We're going to do our own thing. We've got our own little system going up here. And we're just, we're just kind of like vultures. We're coming down, hitting the waves and, and taking out slices from the waves and keeping this little system going around up here when everything else is going that way. And, you know, the amount of energy it takes to keep this circulation happening is ridiculous. It's, it's this self-defeating cycle. The crazy thing is is that the universe supplies so much energy and so much just power that we are wasting most of it, keeping this little money thing spinning, yet there is so much still left over that we have actually built a society out of it and progressed scientifically to where we are now that that is how much of the resources that, you know, or how much energy the universe supplies us. It's, it's just crazy to me. We're wasting so much of it though, just keeping the system <laughs> in, in, you know, in service. But, yeah, so the universe has a sea of calculus that we are utterly avoiding. And we think we know better with, you know, addition of subtraction up here. And we're, you know, pulling slices and, you know, $2.99, $3.99, you know. And this whole dynamic sea is just roiling with, like, just the, the entropic flow of everything just doing its thing. And we're... we're Sitting at our, you know, cashier cashier station and, and typing that's twelve dollars. Like, <laughs> it's just it's so crazy to me that we're still in such a mental rut. Anyway, I am so sorry if you have watched this and you still have no idea what I'm talking about. That that's the best I can do right now. I will try 
to come up with a better way. And if anybody has a better way to really explain this, seriously email me because I have just been pulling my hair out over this episode, having the hardest time breaking this down and like turn it into something that I can <laughs> deliver to the public. But the other two functions of money are much easier. So that's something to look forward to. Um, all right, so that's it for today. If I've confused you, please email me and you can even call me and I will, I will spend an hour with each person. Well, maybe I can't spend an hour, but I will try to explain it to you if you have not understood anything I said. Um, I hope you do though. I hope, I hope, I hope I, I've made this clear enough. If not, listen again and then call me. I don't know what to tell you, man. I've tried to, I don't know what to tell you. I've really tried my best with this one. Thank you for listening. Um, the next two functions of money are going to be much easier to understand. You have my word. Um, but uh, yeah. Thank you for supporting STEM Prime Research Cast and the AI STEM Drive effort. And uh, please like, share, and subscribe if you're ready for a better world. Better, Betty, Bettier world, Bettier world. If you're ready for a better world, let's just do this and see if this is possible. If this is possible, we need to switch our vector of attack. We need to switch directions and just rethink how we see distribution and the allocation of resources. It's just, if, if my hypothesis is correct, we need to re revamp everything like we do, or we're going to be stuck in this rut Post-scarcity is not possible in a currency-driven economy. I'm so, so almost certain of this, and I will... Okay, that is opinion, yes, but I'm almost certain of it. And I will get to a point where I will break this down and do a whole thing with it and see if I can figure it out, but I'm, I'm pretty sure post-scarcity is not possible under a currency-driven economy and exchange-driven. Um, please like the video. The success of, uh, of this effort is totally dependent on you guys, so please continue to share with your friends, relatives, um, co-workers, you know, whatever. Try to get people excited about it. I'm I'm excited about it. I'm working so freaking hard on this, you guys. <laughs> I am so exhausted. I need to take a break soon and just like re-catch up with everything. My idea of a vacation at this point is just catching up on all my work. That's my idea of a vacation right now. Um, again, any questions, comments, critiques, criticisms, whatever. You can email me at researchcast at 
stemdrive.ai. Um, don't forget about the contest if you want to enter it. Um, go back and review the episodes if you need to. You know, turn them on uh, double speed if you if you are like me and you can. Apparently, not everybody can understand videos at double speed. I was not aware of this, but yeah, go back, review the episodes, um, come up with your arguments. You know, formulate your word, put it together, try to come up with something you really like, something that you think really fits uh, the ASM drive and the the STEM ep economy and this whole system, and something that you think could replace the actual term post-scarcity in all of our modern science fiction and fiction and, and economic, you know, research, all that kind of stuff. Do it. Contest time. So this coming Monday, all of the actual like detailed rules will be up on stemdrive.ai. Don't forget that, um, oh crap. One last thing I was going to say. I totally forgot, like mid-sentence. Yeah. Oh, well. Don't forget to have a good time. <laughs> Don't forget to be safe out there. Thank you guys for listening, for watching. And we will see you in no less than two more weeks or no more than two more weeks with the uh, next episode. <sighs> I'm so sorry. This is just, I don't know what it is. I don't know why it's so difficult to, to explain this one. But uh, again, thank you guys. Um, be safe out there and I will see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.